All right, you guys, we're picking up in uh, our study here of Jesus as prophet on page 22. There you go, Cindy. Who else could use handouts here? Okay. 22, 22 is where we are. There you go. There you go, Sarah. Good morning. Anybody else need 22? Got it? Dusty does, okay. Very good. You were here last week, right, Connie? So you got it, okay. Very good. All right, well, we are looking at this lesson about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. I'd say if we are going very fast today, we'll make it through the section on priest, but we still won't make it to the section of Jesus as king. Uh, but we'll see how far, we, how far we go, all right? How about I uh, pray for us, and then we will get into the lesson on page 22. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for all that it means, that this is the Lord's day of Lord's days, that this is the uh, day that means everything. Jesus rose from the dead, and our faith is validated, his crucifixion is validated, uh, our salvation is validated. And Lord, we ask that today we would have our minds focused on our risen Savior, and that we'd be drawn closer to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so these three New Testament or Old Testament offices, look at page 22, the top of your page. <clears throat> these three Old Testament offices, how were they initiated? By what? Anointing. They were initiated by anointing. Prophets in the Old Testament, priests and kings were, initi were initiated into these offices by anointing. And so this is uh, important as we remember Jesus fulfills each of these three offices as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He's the anointed one. And we started on this section about prophet last week. What were Jesus' four main prophetic sermons that we listed off? Number one, Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, that one's simple to remember. It's got sermon in the title, right? Sermon on the Mount. What, what else? Okay, the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew 24 and 25, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because he was on Mount Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. Um, what? Say that again? The Upper Room, very good. So that's uh, John 13 through 16, the Upper Room Sermon or Discourse with Jesus and his disciples. And one more, Virginia, I think you said it. Okay, so Matthew 13, parables about the kingdom, including the mustard seed parable. That's the fourth one we listed off, Matthew chapter 13. So there you go, four main prophetic sermons. And we looked at uh, John 8, 28 and John 12, 48 through 50 last week, where Jesus said that he came not to do his own will, but to do all that the Father had given him and to speak all the words that the Father had given him. And that's what a prophet does, right? A prophet speaks the words of God. And these <clears throat> texts are key to understanding the prophetic office as a whole, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. So let's go back there together. The fifth book of our Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 13, to see how this office is described in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled this office. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and we'll look at the first five verses. Who can read that for us? Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. Jen, go ahead. This is what our, uh, our children were learning in co-op this week. Isn't that great? The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That's good stuff. Well, um, 
two qualifications that we're going to see. Maybe we should read Deuteronomy 18 first. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18 before I write that up there. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Would someone read that for us? Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Okay, well, I, I want to read farther. I'm going to pick it up in verse 19. I think all the way to 22 is probably important. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Listen to this, verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So what's the qualification that we just learned there in verse 22 for a prophet? How you can know for sure a guy is a prophet? Yeah. So qualification number one, prophecy comes to pass. That's pretty simple, right? A guy says, hey, next Thursday, we are, uh, we're going to experience torrential downpours. It'll be a, a crazy flood. And Thursday comes and goes, and it's dry. Don't be afraid of that guy. Not a prophet. Even if he says, God told me, you know, fill in the blank. Well, no, he didn't. <laughs> he, he did not tell you. Someone else told you or you made it up. Okay, That's, Those are really the two options. So qualification number one is a prophecy has to come to pass. But what's the second qualification that we learned in chapter 13, that passage that Jin read for us? Because you might have number one going on, but then number two can disqualify you. And what was that? Deuteronomy 13. Yeah, yeah. Leads... Leads you to worship idols. Now, this is pretty interesting. You can have a prophet come along and say, such and such is going to happen, and then it does. Now, if you're in Israel and you're thinking Deuteronomy 18, you're thinking, okay, well, he's not disqualified yet. But then he stands in front of the people and says, you saw that what I said came true. You saw that what I said came to pass? Now come with me and let's worship this golden calf. Now he's just disqualified himself, hasn't he? Or, uh, you know, golden calf is pretty, it's a pretty stark contrast. You see, you've got the God of the Bible and you've got this piece of metal made with human hands and it's like, okay, that's pretty obvious. But they, prophets can get pretty, false prophets can get pretty crafty, can't they? They can take the God of the Bible and have a God constructed for you that's 99% the same. 99% the same as truth is still a lie, isn't it? That's a different God. And so these two qualifications are important, both one and two. Many people get and understand number one, and that's all that they see. And they think, okay, well, it came, it came true. He must be a prophet. No, that's, that's not it. Because the broken clock is right twice a day. You've heard that before, right? So even a false prophet can be right every now and then. There's also spiritual elements to all of this, where you think of that passage in Matthew 7, where you have the unregenerate standing before the Lord in the day of judgment, and they say to the Lord, 
Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, how do you explain the miracles and the casting out demons and the prophecy? God allows all that to take place, even among those who are unregenerate, even those who reject the truth. And so that's why you got to know your Bible. you got to know what God says about himself. Because even if someone says something and it happens, that's still not enough for you to say, oh, yeah, that person is worth following. Okay? Especially in Israel, when such signs and wonders were taking place, and into the first century, when the apostles were equipped to work supernatural miracles. There were false apostles that popped up. There were many false prophets that popped up in the early church. And sure, there were probably many of them who said things that came to pass, but the believers were expected to know God's revelation enough where they could say, now, wait a second, this happened, yeah, true, but then you started saying that, you know, God is, who knows, a man, Then you started saying that God is fill in the blank, something that goes against God's revelation of himself. So I have to reject you. And if you're in Israel, what's the consequence of a false prophet that we just read about? Not just the people reject him, but what happens to him? Death penalty. Death penalty. Okay, so that's a big deal. Other thoughts on that or any questions on that, those Deuteronomy passages? Tracking? We don't stone false prophets today, just so you know. Uh, That was a commandment for Israel, not for us. Uh, Though sometimes we'd like to, we refrain, okay? Because we shall not murder. Okay, let's look in the New Testament at a couple more passages. You have them on your sheet there. Let's go forward to Matthew together, Matthew chapter 7. And look at verses 24 to 29. Matthew 7, 24 to 29. What you have here is Jesus' teaching. It's probably one of his teachings you're most familiar with. And then you have the people's response. So both of these elements are really important as we consider what's going on here with Jesus revealing himself as prophet. And I guess I should mention, uh, in case you didn't catch it, there in Deuteronomy 18, as we were reading about the qualifications for a prophet, the section that Katrina read was a promise of God saying, I'm going to send you another prophet. One who will come up among your countrymen, Israelites. One who will come up among you, and you shall listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth, you shall listen to him. Now, we know, of course, that's Jesus. And we're going to see how that was fulfilled in this little section, uh, you know, an aspect of that fulfillment. So would someone read verses 24 to 29 of Matthew 7? Go ahead, Stan. All right. So what is so critical about Jesus' words? You see that? In verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, you see that again in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. What's so important about Jesus' words? Authority, okay. Why? How? There are a couple ways to answer that. What was that? Okay, the Word of God. You've got Jesus Himself being God. Jesus Himself is God from all eternity. But then you also have this promise in Deuteronomy 18, where God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet and put my words in his mouth. So you have the father putting his words in the mouth of the son. And that's what Jesus was talking about in 
Those John passages you see up above on your sheet, John 8, 28, John 12, the Father is giving the Son words to speak as He's fulfilling His role as prophet. So it's absolutely critical that you listen to His words. In fact, He uses this illustration. If you don't listen to His words, it's like building your house on sand. Uh, I went down to southern Louisiana, no, southern Mississippi, after Katrina as part of a, a church team to help clean up down there. And have you guys seen those houses that are up on those stilts that are just right there on the water? I question the wisdom of that, all right? Uh, especially after something like Katrina happens and they just build them again. <laughs> and you just think, okay, all right, you know, the Lord bless them. That's how they want to live. Uh, the way that we build our houses says something about our wisdom or our foolishness. And Jesus here is saying you can build your house on the rock. doesn't matter how hard the rain comes down. Solid, steady, good foundation. Or you can build your house on sand. And the difference is, do you embrace the words of Jesus as authoritative, the authoritative word of God? Or do you reject him as a prophet? When people reject Jesus, they're rejecting him in all kinds of senses. They're rejecting him as king. They're rejecting him as savior. They're rejecting him as their priest. We're going to cover all that stuff. But they're also rejecting him as a prophet. So they're rejecting his words, and he says that's foolish. And so you have the people's response in verses 28 and 29. When he had finished these words, they were amazed because he was teaching as one having authority, and then by contrast, not as one of their scribes. They had all kinds of people teaching the word of God all the time. The scribes and Pharisees all the time were teaching people. But this was different. Jesus was different because he's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet who will be raised up from among the countrymen who will speak the words of God. All right, let's see uh, John 6, something similar. In John chapter 6, verses 11 to 14, it's the feeding of the 5,000. Would someone read verses 11 to 14 of John chapter 6? All right, so Jesus works this amazing miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And the people's response is interesting in verse 14. Because of the miracle he worked with feeding the 5,000, they connected him to the office of prophet. They said, he must be a prophet. This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. And that is, of course, because God usually gave prophets some signs and wonders to accompany their message. Think of Elijah and Elisha. They were prophets, but they did all sorts of things. You remember the axe head floating, raising a child from the dead, all those different things that were going on in the Old Testament, through those prophets, God was working miracles. And so the people here, witnessing this miracle of Jesus, they connect him to Deuteronomy 18. I mean, where are they getting this language of the prophet? Notice it doesn't say a prophet. It says the prophet. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And you can see this language in other places. I won't have it on the screen, but you can jot these down. In John 1, 21, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 21, John the Baptist is asked, are you the prophet? There's that language again. Not a prophet, are you the prophet? So people were expecting. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, Matthew eleven three. In that case, you have John the Baptist sending his messengers asking Jesus, are you the expected one? That's kind of interesting. 
Are you the expected one? And I love it because the E is capitalized and the O is capitalized, the expected one. John the Baptist was asking Jesus. And then you've got in John 4, uh, verses 24 and 25, John 4, 24 and 25, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she says, I know that the prophet is coming. I know that Messiah is coming. So there was an expectation on the part of the people that God was going to bring his prophet into the world. Jesus entered the scene in Israel as the authoritative prophet who was able to speak the very words of God, and they had not seen this kind of leading prophet since the days of Moses. Uh, Because Jesus had a following, didn't he? And it grew over the course of his three-year ministry. Uh, That's why at the end, when they were figuring out what to do with Jesus with his crucifixion, they were playing politics because there were people involved who liked Jesus a lot. And so they were having to play politics about all of that. Well, uh, he was a prophet of God who was leading, a leading prophet of God. And the people did consider him to be a prophet. Not all the people, of course, because he was crucified after all. But there were many people who recognized him as a prophet. So you see on your sheet, I've got people's understanding and Jesus' claims. Uh, We see the people's understanding of Jesus as prophet in Matthew 21, those two verses, and in Luke chapter 7, 14 through 17. You've got Jesus raising the widow's son, and the people saying, oh, he's the prophet. He must be the prophet. And some other events there where the, the crowds are recognizing him as the prophet of God. And then you have Jesus calling himself a prophet in Mark 6 and in Luke 13. We can go ahead and turn to that Mark 6 passage too as you're able, as you're jotting that stuff down. Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. Jesus himself says that he is a prophet. And so if if you were a good Jew during Jesus' day, and you're around this man who's gaining a following, and he calls himself a prophet, what do you do right here? Qualifications. You check, do his prophecies come to pass? And does he lead us to worship idols or not? Okay, So Jesus was to be tested by those faithful Jews. and Because, I mean, God gave him those tests. You could say Jesus gave him those tests. And so Jesus comes to earth as the prophet. And does he pass both of those? Well, yes, of course he does. He, his prophecies come to pass, and he did not lead them to worship idols. Okay, well, let's look at Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Who can read that for us? Mark 6, 1 to 6. All right. So the key part of this, of course, is verse 4 where Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. And he was dishonored there, wasn't he? Uh, You can see by their questions and the way that they're framing the whole situation, they were not recognizing him as a prophet, but he refers to himself as a prophet. And you got the same thing going on in Luke chapter 13, where he calls himself a prophet. In Luke 13, 31, he says... um, Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, (laughs) calls Herod a fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. 
Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So at least a couple of different times there, Jesus is referring to himself as a prophet. Okay? Wayne Grudem says in his Systematic Theology, Christ is, of course, truly and fully a prophet. In fact, he is the one whom all the Old Testament prophets prefigured in their speech and in their action. So you've got Moses prefiguring Jesus. You've got Elijah prefiguring Jesus. When Jesus comes, he is the last and great prophet who's come into the world. You think of how Hebrews, that letter to the Hebrews begins, where it says, in ages past, God spoke through the prophets in many times, in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So there's like a culmination, a fulfillment of the office of prophet in the person of Jesus. Now, of course, he appoints his disciples. His disciples are sent out as apostles. There's an explosion of charismatic sign gifts that happen in the early church. You have prophets in the churches. You have those speaking with tongues. You have those performing miracles. You have all that happening in the first century. Uh, but it's all ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And all of that seemed to exist in the first century as God was validating this gospel message that was going out. And once we have the Word of God established, once we have the Word of God delivered to us, we have no need for a continuing prophet because we have the Word of God pointing us back to the prophet, the one who fulfilled all things. His apostles, who were inspired by the Spirit to prophesy and to write Scripture, well, that's been preserved for us by God that we can go back and read not only of the teachings of the prophet Jesus, but of the implications of that in the letters. We can read the letter to the Colossians, the letters to the Corinthians, etc., etc., that tell us the implications of this reality that Jesus is the prophet who's come into the world. Okay? Any thoughts, questions on this section of Jesus as prophet before we move on to Jesus as priest? Crystal clear, huh? Very good. Okay. Even Isaac doesn't want me to call on him. He got quiet when I said that. That's, it, he's, he's learned quickly to get quiet when, you know, no false moves when I'm looking for people asking questions. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, let's talk about Jesus as priest, okay? Because not only was he a prophet, but he was and continues to be a priest. There are two main aspects to the priesthood fulfillment of Christ. These are your blanks on the sheet here. His propitiation and his intercession. Propitiation, intercession. Now, we already looked at uh, propitiation in the previous lessons when we talked about the death of Christ. It's the removal of man's sin, and it's the satisfaction of God's wrath. If you're just trying to think of what that word means, propitiation, the removal of man's sin, the satisfaction of God's wrath, and he accomplished this by sacrificing himself. This is what we contemplated on Good Friday, that Jesus is the best and final sacrifice, but he's also the best and final priest, isn't he? He was the one who mediated his own sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. And so when you think about how Jesus' priesthood was demonstrated and continues to be demonstrated, think of those two words, propitiation and intercession. And we'll talk more about what these mean. He interceded for us as sinners when he died on the cross. 
presenting his blood to the Father as an appropriate sacrifice. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore in his body our sins on the cross. Okay, so that's when he's presenting his sacrificial death to the Father as an appropriate sacrifice. And he still intercedes for us. Here's another blank on your sheet. He still intercedes for us as advocate, perfecter, and mediator. He is our advocate, he's the perfecter of our faith, and he's the mediator of a new and better covenant. Right? And so we'll see these things in these three passages I have listed, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. All right, so let's, um, let's look at these, and after we read each one, we'll share some thoughts about what we're learning about Jesus as priest in these passages, starting with Romans 8. So let's all turn there together, Romans 8, 33 to 35. I'll read this first one for us. And I want you to, again, ponder Jesus as priest. What are we seeing here that speaks to Jesus acting as our priest? Not just our prophet, but our priest. I'll start in verse 31, Romans 8, 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Ah, got to keep reading this, don't you? Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, that's a real satisfying passage, isn't it? You read that and it's just like, oh, that makes me feel good. That's good. Well, what do we see, particularly in 33 to 35? What do we see that speaks to Jesus' priestly ministry? Very good. He's interceding. Remember, intercession is how we see His priesthood ministry. Now, tell me... Why do we need Jesus to intercede for us? <laughs> okay. Why? Okay. Yeah, we've got this sin problem, don't we? When you first come to know the Lord and you're initially saved, when you're born again, obviously in that moment you're recognizing, I've got a big sin problem that I can't fix. And God saves you. He regenerates you. He washes you. But then what keeps happening in your life? Yeah, sin, right? 
You keep on sinning. Sin keeps happening to you. You still have this relationship with sin. In uh, the chapter before this, Romans 7, Paul says he does these things he doesn't want to do. The things he hates, he keeps on doing. Well, that's why you continually need an intercessor, don't you? You need Jesus to intercede for you. First um, John chapter 1, if any of us says we don't have sin, what are we doing? We're making God a liar. But if anyone sins, what's the good news? We have an intercessor, an advocate okay, with the Father, and he speaks for us before the Father because we are in him. That's an amazing ministry of Jesus that continues on, isn't it? That even though you continue to sin, and there are some people that take this really far, uh, kind of with this idea that, well, if you're, if you're born again, you don't sin anymore. Because, you know, you, you just, Jesus washed you of all that, and so no matter what you do, you're fine. You don't sin anymore. Well, on the one hand, yeah, no matter what you do, if you are truly in Christ, you're covered by the blood of Christ. That's true. On the other hand, does the New Testament present to us a gospel that says, hey, believe in Jesus and then go do whatever you want? No. May it never be. The, the New Testament presents to us a gospel that is to be joined in the kind of faith that says, I will follow you with the cross on my back too. Daily. We pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. That is living faith. That's what we're called to in this Christian life, is discipleship. The Christian call that we send out there isn't, hey, we've got free fire insurance, free fire insurance, line up, we'll sign you up. And then they sign their name, and then you never see them again, and who knows what they do, it doesn't matter, they have fire insurance. That is not the gospel call. The gospel call is, look at what Jesus did for you, would you believe on him today? With a, an authentic faith that says, take my life and let it be. There's a, there's a hymn that we sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's true faith. Yeah, well, and here's, here's the really big issue with that uh, that people don't really think about that you can, you can employ whenever you run into somebody like this. You ask them the question, well, what is Jesus' current ministry? If we no longer have a sin problem, what is Jesus' current ministry toward his people? Hey, now let's look at Hebrews 7, because that really gets to the heart of it. I mean, you see it in Romans 8 too here, but let's go to Hebrews 7 toward the back of your Bible. And it gets pretty explicit here. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 tells us what that current ministry of Jesus is toward his people. Three verses, Roman, or, uh, Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Who can get that for us? Verse 25 tells us what Jesus' present ministry toward his people is. What is it? Yes, and to make intercession. He always lives to make intercession for them. I mean, that, that is Jesus' current ministry toward you, Christian. He's ministering constantly toward you. He's always living for this purpose, to intercede for you before the Father. That's amazing stuff. That's really, really good. Uh, this morning we're going to sing our, our first song is The Precious Blood. Talk about the precious blood of Jesus. And in the chorus, we say, It speaks for me before your throne, where I stand justified. <laughs> 
Jesus' precious blood speaks for us before the throne of God. Very good. Questions or thoughts on Hebrews 7 before we look at Revelation? I love that verse. Hebrews 7.25. That's really good. Okay, Revelation chapter 1. This is a longer passage. I'll read it for us. And this one maybe is a little more difficult to grasp as far as how does this speak to the intercessory ministry of Jesus? But I think, I think you'll get there. I think you'll see it. Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. And then I'll read through chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation 1, verse 12. The Apostle John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You think? <laughs> right? What else would you do? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then he goes on in chapter 2 verse 1 to say, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And then he goes on to his messages to the seven churches. Well, um, verse 20 of chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1, is critical to understand what's going on here. He gives us the, the key so we can understand. You know, you see symbols and stuff on a map and you might not know what they mean. You've got to go to the key and look. And here we see stars and lampstands, they mean something. The stars are what? Okay. Anybody got a translation that says anything different uh, than angels? The angels of the seven churches? Everybody says angels? Okay. Well, that's the most common way it's translated. It seems messenger is most appropriate. In Greek, the word for angel and the word for messenger is the same word. So you have to use context clues to know if we're talking about a human messenger or a heavenly angel. Well, it seems because Jesus is telling him to write to these angels that it's probably most appropriate to understand that these are messengers of churches. 
those who receive and send messages to and from churches. If this was an angel of heaven, the Lord himself could speak to the angel, right? Uh, But he's using his apostle here to write to the leaders of the churches. That's my interpretation anyway for today. You can change my mind if you'd like. Um, But the seven lampstands are what, according to that, that verse? Okay, so the lampstands represent the churches. Now, with that knowledge, go back to verse 13, and what's Jesus doing in relation to the lampstands? Yeah, there you go. He's just, he's there in the midst of the lampstands. What's that communicating to us, knowing that the lampstands are the churches? Yeah, he's there, he's present, he's active in his churches. And these are his churches, aren't they? And he's, he's there. What about verse 1 of chapter 2? The last verse I read, what's he doing? Yeah, walking among the golden lampstands. He's, he's active in the middle of, in the midst of the churches. He is present and he is working. What's that famous verse in Matthew 18? It starts with where. Remember Matthew 18. I don't know what I said. I meant to say 18. Matthew 18, Jesus says where two or... (laughs) There you go. Where two or three are gathered, I'm there in the midst of them. And he is talking in the context there about church discipline, about decisions made in the church. Jesus promises to be there among those who are leading in the churches and in the churches themselves. And we see that continued on here in Revelation, that Jesus actively dwells among his churches. Pretty amazing. Thoughts or questions on that passage? Okay. Okay, I I was ready for questions. We will make it a little bit farther today, but not all the way to the section on his kingship. Well, in one sense, Jesus is seated, signifying that the work is complete. In another sense, Jesus is actively interceding on behalf of his people. So, yeah, you can cross-reference what we just saw in Revelation 1 and 2 with other passages that we hear about Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. We just read that in Romans 8. He's seated at the right hand of God, yet he's doing what in the midst of the golden lampstands? Walking. So on the one hand... The work is complete. On the other hand, he still has a ministry toward his people, doesn't he? And here's your blank at the top. His propitiation is entirely complete or finished. He said as much on the cross, tetelestai, that Greek word that means it is finished. But his intercession is ongoing. Aren't we thankful that he wasn't indicating all of his ministry is finished? Jesus didn't cease to be on the cross but he always lives to make intercession for the saints. So his propitiation is entirely complete, the cross, but his intercession is ongoing. It's what he does now spiritually as he walks among the golden lampstands. Okay. As Utahns well know, there are two types of priesthoods, the Aaronic and Melchizedek, or Melchizedekian. Okay? To fully understand the work of Jesus as priest, 
we must fully understand the functions of these priesthoods. Okay, so you see on the top of page 23 there that we're going to describe the Aaronic and Melchizedekian priesthoods, do a little bit of compare and contrast. I don't know if I want to start that today, but we have nine minutes left. That's a lot of time to just leave on the table. But this is also a really big thing to start. You guys should have had more questions today or thoughts or something. You put me in a bind here. Yeah, that's right. Yet not one of his miracles ever failed, right? It wasn't like at the wedding of Cana, uh, you know, they went and checked the jars and they said, oh, still, still empty. No, I mean, he came through every time. But that shows, to answer the question, it just shows how deep sin is. How can it be in the future when Jesus is reigning for a thousand years that at the end, Satan is still going to gather his own for one final attempt at a rebellion? Because he's going to be ruling and reigning right in front of us, us all. Yeah. But, but, he also, but you're talking about Satan. But Satan has his people who will still disobey, even though he's reigning from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And, but don't you think... Those who have passed on to glory are thinking the same thing about people on earth still who reject Jesus. Because there's a lot of stuff that happens here on earth that's like amazing. There's all kinds of evidence that God has given us. There's all kinds of opportunity. I mean, any, anybody who's a scientist and an atheist, it makes no sense to me. You study science, whether it's at the molecular level or the astronomical level, both are mind-blowing. Whether you're a scientist with a microscope or a telescope, you're seeing, like, impossible stuff, materialistically speaking. But they exist because sin runs deep, doesn't it? Well, certainly. They, they use... <clears throat> well, and how, how do all people use that, that will that God has given them? To reject them. That's, that's, that's Romans 1 through 3. The beginning of Romans goes into detail explaining what does man naturally do? He suppresses the truth of God and replaces it with the lie. He rejects the creator and he worships the creature. And not just uh, the Gentile man in chapter 2, it's also the Jew. The Jew is so proud of his own works. God gives him commands, gives him works to do. He still finds a way to make it about himself and reject God. In Romans 3, everyone is shut up under sin because that's how every single person naturally uses his volition is to reject God. Because what do we want? We want to be our own God, our own authority. We don't want moral accountability. So when people believe in Jesus, we say that's unnatural. That's a work of God. That's a work of his grace. That's a gift. That is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 we, we see you know, this, this famous passage that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone would boast. Uh, Jesus taught that salvation is not of him who wills. The New Testament teaches it's about God who shows mercy. It's not dependent on man who wills, but on God who shows mercy, Romans chapter 9. 
Okay? So it's an unnatural thing when someone's born again. That's a miracle. It's a reflection of God's grace. And we'll get into all that a lot more when we get into uh, the study of salvation. But we still have to finish our study of Christ, the study of the Spirit. And then I think we get into the study of salvation. So that'll be good. Other thoughts or questions? Now we only have five minutes left. Good job, Stan in Virginia. Thanks. Right. Yeah. Well, Revelation is a, a tricky book, as we all know, right? <clears throat> For a lot of people, they, they think, oh, I'm just, I'm not going to read Revelation because it's too confusing. Well, the problem with that is that God says in the opening verses of Revelation, blessed is everyone who reads this book. You're rejecting a blessing of God if you don't read the book. Shooting a fact at you, okay? Um, now, even though it's confusing, it'll take work. There's a blessing there. I mean, anything that you've got to work for is usually going to be worth it. Well, um, yeah, so you think about the symbolism, and you can do this all through Revelation. But the lampstands, Old Testament, New Testament, particularly the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or the temple, and then now um, in talking about churches. We have in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, you are you, the church, you are the temple of God. Now, uh, two times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are the temple. In chapter 3, he's talking about the church is the temple. In chapter 6, he's talking about individual believers are temples. Okay? It's important to know the difference between the two, because I've seen some people say, look, God says that we're temples, and they go to 1 Corinthians 3, but that's not what, in the context, that's what it's talking about. Okay? But 1 Corinthians 3, he says the church is the temple. And so, yeah, there is a, a fulfillment here. Jesus himself is the temple. You destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, whoa, it took our fathers a long time to build this thing. And, but he's talking about his body, it tells us. And we are his body. So there's a connection with all these things. Even you look at the, the bride and the bridegroom, that extends back into the Old Testament. You talk about a sheep and shepherd, that goes back to the Old Testament. Um, so, so there's all kinds of uh, illustrations that run from the old into the new, where you have fulfillment of some things, you have some things not yet fulfilled, you've got some things that are in between where it's like already but not yet. And I think it'd be very appropriate with the lampstands to recognize, well, that's a familiar illustration that that Jesus is using through John, where they would know, yeah, that lampstand was important in Israel's history, and now there's some sort of fulfillment aspect with the church. Yep. Good. Well, at this point, I can probably just end. And we can have a little extra fellowship time here on Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Day. Um, this is, of course, the, the big day on our calendar. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are utter fools for being here right now. So the fact that you're here says something about what you think about the resurrection. And uh, you can rest assured that as Joe reminded us a few weeks ago, the Bible tells us so. Jesus has risen from the dead. God has declared it. He's given us evidences that we don't deserve. He's given us a community. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us all these things that we would have affirmed in our hearts day by day over and over again that we don't serve a dead Savior, but we serve a risen Savior. Amen?